0: Awareness, the final frontier. These are the explorations of Jonathan Robinson and Brian Tom O'Connor, their continuing mission to discover fresh new paths to the mystery within, to seek out new joys and new methods of awakening, to boldly go into the heart of expanded consciousness. This is Awareness Explorers.
1: Welcome back, Awareness Explorers. Great to have you. We have a special guest today, Dr. Chris Niebauer. And before I introduce him, let me say hi to my trusty co-host.
0: Brian Tom O'Connor. And
1: what's happening on your end of the the woods, Uh, Brian? How are you doing?
0: Oh, oh, I'm doing great. And I'm just really looking forward to talking to Chris because really the subject of the self, the illusory self, uh, whether the self exists or not, the... um, comparison of neuropsychology and buddhism and other spiritual forms i just you know some of the most fascinating subjects to me so welcome as chris. you and i Thank
1: have you. as you and i have dived into uh, dr niebauer's work uh, there's so many questions we want to ask him so let's get to it let's tell our listeners a little bit about him uh, chris niebauer phd is the author of no self no problem and The Neurotic's Guide to Avoiding Enlightenment, which I also want to ask him about. Uh, he's a tenured professor. He has a PhD in cognitive neuropsychology, specializing in the differences between the left and right sides of the human brain. He teaches courses on consciousness, mindfulness, left and right brain differences, and artificial intelligence. Well, welcome to Awareness Explorers, Chris.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: So, with all your background, um, it's hard to know where to begin, but, you know, you have this very popular book called No Self, No Problem, and I'm wondering what inspired you to write a book like that.
2: It actually originated with the Neurotics Guide to Avoiding Enlightenment, which is a title that's far too complex for any book, <laughs> but um, it was way back, maybe even in 2010, that um I actually got quite sick and and, and and had insomnia and just couldn't sleep. And so I just sat and started writing and it just all just sort of poured out. And um, it, it was almost like this, like the story of how I was so neurotic in my 20s and, and how fighting that n- neurosis got me deeper into my neurosis. And I felt like the story had just culminated to this then all of a sudden it just came out in words. And I just felt like I was just typing away. Just um, it, was, it felt like it was already written. And then that was a self-publish. And it didn't do very well because I, I think I did every single thing you could do wrong as far as publishing a book. I had <laughs> a very long, difficult title to understand. Uh, it wasn't terribly well organized. And so I ended up hooking up with uh, Hierophant Publishing. and. Um, and and then we so we totally redid the book, and that's how no self, no problem came out.
1: Uh-huh. Now, the the uh Narak's guide to avoiding enlightenment is largely about how a lot of our efforts to feel better or become more awake actually are self-defeating in a certain way. Can you say something about that?
2: It was all centered around one of my first insights into all of this. So after my father died, I was almost launched, almost instantly into a, a very high, intense neurotic state. I was terrified of death. And I had, like, even if I was talking to you, uh, like right now, I would be thinking, is my heart going to stop? Uh-huh. You know, am I just going to suddenly die? And um so death had become this enemy that I felt like I had to continuously fight against. And the neurosis got so bad, it was really intruding into my uh, I was in um like an undergraduate at the time and and it was really just getting to be um uh, interfering with my basic, you know, day-to-day activities. And then I had this insight. I got so frustrated one day trying to fight my neurosis, I just quit. I just said I'm not I can't do it anymore. Just kill me, you know, just take me. You know, it was that kind of moment of absolute um um mm-hmm. surrender, absolute surrender, I, I just gave up on it all. And then something strange happened. I was at, I was very peaceful the next few days. I was really, I felt really good. And that always stuck with me. And, and I had realized that it was my fighting my anxiety. That was my anxiety.
3: Mm-hmm. It was me resisting
2: mm-hmm. it. It was me insisting that it shouldn't be here. That was the anxiety, and the moment I had surrendered to it, it simply vanished. And it was, it was <laughs> just one of those insights that uh, it just it, it it was like a paradigm shift in my life.
0: Mm-hmm. I can really relate to that because my experience is almost identical. I, I you know for years I suffered from depression, and 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 you know psychotherapy did help to a certain degree because it's a safe place to actually have your emotions but it wasn't until i just said wait a minute i'm done fixing myself yeah. that this paradoxical thing happens <laughs> and right. all of a sudden uh there's there's there're fewer there's there's fewer constrictions there's fewer demands we make on our experience and ourselves when when we're pretty much okay with the way we are and then through some mysterious paradox we actually improve we actually get better and and, and we're we're at a time right now
2: where we're caught up and maybe this started in the 60s but it certainly is in full force now where the self-improvement culture is 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 mainstream and 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 you have to go back to one of my favorite lectures from alan watts and he and i think he said it so profoundly he said um the reason you want to be better is the reason why you are not
0: Uh Mm.
2: and so he tied it in very explicitly like you know it's you wanting to be better that's what needs to be fixed and if you could just have acceptance and just be open to exactly how you are at this moment then you find the self improvement that you are actually looking for
1: yeah that's right yeah the whole self-improvement industry can just make you tighter, more constricted, more <laughs> non-accepting, farther away from love and peace. And it's yes. a paradox.
2: It is. And so my students, we I, I started to recognize this about 10 years ago, that we're a culture that so habitually says, have a good day. And I think that kind of sets a tone where we just feel this pressure like you have to have I, I actually had them count how many times they had either said have a good day or someone else told them to have a good day and it was like for some of them it was 10 20 times a day it was just this ritual like have a good day and and I said let's stop that let's just have the day we're gonna have (laughs) well, let's
0: just <laughs> Right, it's always the secondary thing. I mean, we we think that our problem is uh, getting angry or our problem is anxiety or whatever. And um and the idea that we shouldn't be angry or that we shouldn't have anxiety, especially in the spiritual seeking world, well, particularly um, yes. is 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 a really such a huge thing. I mean, But so much of that idea and so much of the reason we feel these things is wrapped up in this story that we weave in our brains, which is really what you talk about a lot and no self, no problem. And that, that it's the left brain that creates this story out of and see if, and correct me if I'm wrong. The way I understand it is that what it does is it, it makes comparisons and it creates categories in a world where they don't really exist. Mm. The left brain seems to be
2: particularly good at abstractions, mm. at things that don't really exist in the world. They're completely products of the mind. And the trick the left brain plays on us is not only does it create these abstractions, but then it convinces us that they're real. And and, and that's the whole trick with the thinking game. And, and I tell people, you know, we're stuck in a time when we're all thinking too much and yet, at the same time, we're trying to get out of this problem by thinking more. <laughs> we think we can think our way out of a thinking problem. Uh-huh. And it's and so you, you, we're, we're stuck in these abstractions. And that's why I think so many of these practices of meditation, yoga, tai chi, the wonderful thing about all of these practices is they take you out of the abstract world. They take you out of those thoughts and, and language, which is just a complete abstraction, And it takes you out of that abstract world and it brings you back into something very grounded, something very practical, basic sensory experiences. And and that's a great way to get out of our thinking.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, about 30 years ago, I I, uh, interviewed a lot of famous spiritual teachers and I asked them how they connect with God or consciousness and uh, now on the podcast, I asked the same thing. I noticed that the answers have really changed in the last 30 years. Wow. You know, people used to say things like I use a mantra or a prayer. But nowadays, people are much more likely to say I do qigong or tai chi or Realization process, all these body-oriented things, because using our head to get out of our head is a pretty uh, trying activity.
2: <laughs> as I found, it's 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 frustrating and it, it really impossible, at least from my experience. And so um, you can sidestep that by getting into the body is a great way. And I think a lot of these practices—that's why they're so popular right now. It's no coincidence that as we reach perhaps our pinnacle of thinking. Um, and valuing thinking and, and valuing our thoughts and, but at the same time, not seeing them as thoughts, seeing them as actual reality as it is and that these movements would come in as a counterbalance to help bring a little bit of, uh, just, you know, the middle path. So we can feel a little bit more balanced by getting out of our minds, you know, mm-hmm. lose our minds and just come to your senses once in a while. And it's, and, uh, um, for me, when people say, well, what is enlightenment? What is this thing that people talk about? Uh, all I tell them is it's, it's, it's when you stop thinking <laughs> and, and you don't even have to stop thinking. You just have to stop believing in your thoughts. You just, you, you become the witness to the thinking process. And as far as I can tell, that's about as close as I would define enlightenment as.
0: Mm-hmm. It gives a whole new meaning to the term losing your mind. <laughs> yeah. I know people people think losing your mind is such a bad thing, but actually, as it turns out and
2: and I think even cognitive science has come around on to this, and that's why cognitive therapy is so popular because cognitive therapy deals directly with the thoughts themselves, and so uh it's fascinating as a species that we've gone so long completely possessed by our thinking minds, and then only in the last maybe 30 40 years have we started to stumble upon this insight that maybe we're not our thoughts? Maybe we're not even our emotions. And I love this uh, meme that goes around, you know, don't believe everything you think. And that's a fascinating thing that our species is at this place right now where we're we're discovering that our thoughts are, they're not who we are. They're like a computer program stuck in our head. They're, and they're very predictable. And they often lead to suffering. And and so, you know, they're helpful once in a while if you know how to use them. But if they're using you, then you can find yourself where I was in my 20s. I was lost in thought and I suffered for it.
0: Yeah, Uh, he seems to be helpful in practical ways, but completely unhelpful in emotional life. One of the...
2: Problems with thinking, and there's actually quite a bit of literature on this in psychology, is they discovered how much the mind can hijack emotions and how, like, the interpretive, those stories that we come up with. So sometimes those stories start digging into our emotional lives and, 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 and taking our emotions into places. And so, you know, before you get on stage, before you get in front of a large group of people, you know, your heart's going to be a little faster. You might even start to sweat a little bit. You haven't, it's a normal reaction your body has to just being observed by other people. And some people may start telling a story about that and they say, Oh, I'm I'm really anxious right now. But then there's other stories, and people are starting to realize you can play, you have a little bit of freedom to play with these stories and change these stories. And, and maybe you're not anxious. Maybe you're just really excited. And all of a sudden you are excited. <laughs> you're not nervous and you're excited.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and, and and we have a lot of um, power uh, once we get beyond our thinking to take our emotions in different directions or just ignore them altogether. You know, you were mentioning things like getting angry And, uh, you know, you can get angry and then you get angry that you got angry and you can get angry that you got angry. It goes on and (laughs) and your day's kind of taken up with all that. And the the wonderful insight you were describing, you know, is that you just cut it off. Yeah, you got angry. And it wasn't even you that got angry. You didn't choose to get it. You didn't sit and make a decision and say, I'm going to get angry right now. It just happened. So how can it even be who you are? Yeah. Let's
1: take that farther. You know, your book is called "No Self, No Problem," and being a cognitive neuroscientist and and also a spiritual seeker, you're very aware of this idea: that there is no you. There is no actual. You know, we're a figment of our own imagination. And I'm wondering how you help people to see that reality or to step out of the other reality where they think no i'm me and i'm i'm doing this and all the way that we normally might think of ourselves uh what has helped you to see that there is actually no you in reality it's it's very easy to
2: get philosophical with this it's very seductive to to go into more thinking and and you could read lots of books that that are very intellectual. They hit it at an intellectual level. And actually, my take is to hit it more experientially, hit it more with practices. And so in No Self, No Problem, I tried to end every chapter with some kind of exploration or practice that people could engage in. And one of the things my students like, and we, we do this how many selves in a day practice. And what it shows you is that the self that you think is so stable is actually an amazing variable and it's changing all the time. And so maybe I have one self that I have right now as we're talking and communicating, and that can be very helpful. And then as soon as this podcast is over, I will go play with my son and we'll go out back and have, you know, do soccer. And then, then I'll sit on the guitar and all of a sudden there's that it's just gone for a little bit. And then, um you know, and so the self is just, if you start noticing these, you You can come up with a hundred selves in a day, and, and sometimes you're at work and and you have one self as you talk to one person, but then someone else enters the room and you notice like suddenly there's a a different self. And so the self that most people all, many people just take for granted they just assume that there's this stable self, it really is almost continuously changing, and it's never under our control. They just whimsically come and go, and then often people say, "Well." okay, I've watched all the selves, but I'm the self behind the self. And that's a clever trick of the thinking mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I say, okay, well, let's do this. How many selves behind the self do you have? Ever? And, and so they'll start noticing that the self that is behind the self is itself just another thought. And so once we do that for a day or two, then you say, okay, well, what is observing all of this? And so now let's take another day and let's observe. Uh, Instead of, you know, being part of these uh, changing selves, let's step back a little bit and be the observer of all these different selves. And, you know, as they say, the witness. And uh, it's interesting because then people start to notice that this witness isn't much of a self. This witness is, some people just call it consciousness, some people call it awareness, but this the witness has no personality. It has no particular preferences. It hasn't, it doesn't have a gender. It doesn't, it doesn't have, you know, it isn't so tall. It doesn't have a weight and an age to it. And so, um, it's, it, it, that's been, so these practices expose the self. And it's, it's really not that different than what the Buddha did with his second lecture, his famous lecture on no self. He just explained to the students, you know, that, um, you know, you have emo- these, it's continuously changing your emotions, your thoughts, it's a continuous change, and you're not in, in any control over it. And so how can it be you?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and, and so um, that's, that's been my way uh, of, uh, because again, I found when I, when I do all the neuroscience because that's the fascinating thing is neuroscience has come to the exact same conclusion. They can't find a self in the brain. They certainly can't find consciousness in the brain. And so, oh, I should, I mean, there are certainly people who think that that is still a hopeful endeavor. And, and I wish them, you know, all the best. That's a wonderful adventure to be on. But, um, from my take, uh, you, you can't find these things in the brain because they simply, are not part of what the brain does. What, what the brain does is create a story of who we think we are. And that's what they did discover with the, they've discovered two major insights in the last 50 years. One has been the left brain's ability to confabulate stories. And, uh, and this is a wonderful insight to what it means to be human. We make stories up. And then we believe them <laughs> I mean, that should be, you know, instead of, you know, homo sapiens, our species is known as one who knows. I don't know what the Latin would be for confabulate, but we should be known as one who confabulates.
0: <laughs> homo
2: confabulous. <laughs> yeah, perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> jot that down. That's Yeah. So um, and. um and again, making stories, that's fine. The, the trouble all happens when we believe them and we believe that we are the story. And so neuroscience has done a great job of localizing that, 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 um, again, the left brain is called the interpreter because it's trying to make sense of our reality and it does so by creating interpretations. And one interpretation is, well, there's a bunch of thoughts in my head. There must be a thinker of the thoughts and that must be who I am. And, um, then, and that was about the 1960s or 70s. And then more recently, there's been this discovery of the default mode network. And that's a very interesting, uh, kind of center line structure. There's one in the back, one in the front, and they seem to be primarily involved in mind wandering. So, um, there's actually another accidental discovery where. They needed a control condition when they're doing brain imaging. And what they found is, you know, we're not really good at not doing anything. If I say, well, just sit there, you know, you're just going to sit there and start thinking. (laughs) And, you know, and we're so wonderful at these stories that we're going to come up, we're going to replay stories from the past, or we're going to, you know, project possible stories of the future. And that's, of course, what these uh, subjects were doing. And these parts of the brain, this default mode network lit up every time people started mind wandering. and so. Neuroscience has shown some pretty interesting discoveries about not who we are. And I think this is the fundamental role of neuroscience as far as what I've concluded. Neuroscience can't teach us who we are, but it's going to play an excellent and outstanding role in showing us who we are not. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's why I, I've stuck with neuroscience. That's why I, I really think neuroscience is important. I don't think it's going to find out who we are, though. But I think it's going to give us excellent pointers at who we're not. And sometimes that's all it takes. When you discover what you're not, it can put you on a completely different path.
1: And it could be a, it could be a really excellent adventure. And those are some methods uh, the Buddha used, not this, not that. You're not your thoughts. You're not your emotions. You're not your story. You're not your body. You know, and, and that ends up being a great spiritual technique.
0: When you ask the question and you come up with an answer, every answer that you come up with is a concept that's known by something that's not a concept. And that's when you get down, you just keep going down and down until you have this sense that what's actually doing the knowing has no qualities of its own. It is. It it points to another discovery our species
2: has recently um, had the insight to, and that is the thinking mind is limited. You know, it's, it's remarkable. If you look over the last few hundred years, we've got Descartes saying, I think therefore I am. But then in Western society, our our thoughts and, and our intelligence, our thinking intelligence has dominated our day-to-day lives. And, and if I have a few more IQ points than you, that really builds my story up and i and i actually buy into it and think that i'm quite important and what we're discovering slowly is the vast limitations of the thinking mind you know quantum mechanics came along in the 1930s and and no one could think about it we knew it was right it fit it fit the data but no one could understand it and then of course, this is the take that Zen sometimes will go with a koan, and 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 they'll point out the limitations of the thinking mind, and then we're in this very interesting world, like nature that has thousands of variables that are all interacting in complex ways, and the thinking mind is slowly discovering, like, I don't think I can understand this. <laughs> it's too. I mean, just to give you an example, things like um, like when COVID hit. Um, you're talking about something in nature that's just, a, it's a very complex system that involves multiple variables interacting in multiple ways. But here in the West, we were, we're working on it, but we still think the thinking mind is our way out. So, but the thinking mind can only pay attention to one variable at a time. It's like this time, it's like a narrow light that, that like a spotlight and, it, and it, it can only focus on one thing at a time but that's not the way reality is reality is a mess it's it's you know thousands of variables working together in complex ways and so i think you know that's that's been a it's a pretty big discovery that thinking mind is limited and uh and we're going to keep we're going to keep we're, this is just the beginning and and when it comes to who we are we're going to find out that We cannot think about who we are because our thoughts are so limited. It cannot capture our essence and our essence, therefore, is a mystery to the thinking mind. Mm -hmm. We cannot capture consciousness with a thought conscious. So, and, and maybe that's because we are
1: consciousness. I noticed that you're also, you sometimes teach courses in artificial intelligence, and I thought that was an interesting combination with courses on consciousness and mindfulness and brain. What is the connection that you see between those fields?
2: A perfect timing with that, because for the first time in history, human beings are sharing the planet with something else that can compete with our thinking mind mm. our thinking mind is why you know if you look at the kind of evolutionary survival game one of the ways that we won is the thinking mind it's very clever mm. at control and manipulation and, and it's very good at these things and so of course we human beings are dominating the planet and uh, but one of the things that is very recent of course are thinking machines and we are going to, if we haven't already, lost the game of competing with thinking machines. They already can outthink us. Now, that's okay for now because I think we're playing a game where we say, well, you know, sure, we, we're still masters of the universe. Our, our egos, our thinking minds are still thinking they've got control of all of this. And because they're saying, well, we're the programmers and we can unplug Skynet To make an 80s reference, we can unplug Skynet anytime we want. But I think this is going to go into a very, there's many speculations on this, but this could go in a very interesting direction. I think it's already there, where these thinking machines can already outthink us. And that's going to put human beings in a very humbling position, because the very thing that we had put as our defining characteristic, our thinking mind, now there's something else on the planet that can outthink us.
1: And it's preying on our weaknesses by uh getting our attention through polarization and you know facebook posts and and recommendations and a lot of us are just a uh a, a victim of these thinking minds that are are really know our weaknesses and and uh use them to make money
2: they and that's putting it that way makes it sound they may have already outthought us. And they are winning. And so what I tell my students in artificial intelligence, of course we cover different types of artificial intelligence, but what I really focus on, cause it sounds like we're, you know, I'm like, we're not doing any computer programming. We're not, you know, creating a terminator in class or anything. What we're really focusing on is our human, ex- what, what is the human experience as we bring these machines that are in many ways, smarter than us on the, onto the planet. And I asked them, okay, what if our thinking minds, what if we're not the smartest species on the planet? Now what?
1: What are we uniquely good at?
2: What? And then, and then you start, okay, what are human beings? And that starts to take us into our past. It takes us into our past. um, when we were, when we were more guided by shamans than we were by science Mm -hmm. and we start connecting with things like creativity. And emotions that and feelings that are not dominated by the thinking mind. So some of these emotions and feelings are totally new sensations. But I think it all ties in with creativity. We're going to find that hum- we're going to re- reconnect with our unique capacity to be creative, and, and 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 that's the thing the thinking mind has always taken credit for, and it isn't. You know, it's funny if you look at any creative act, it just you know, you're going for a walk and it just, it's just there. And then the thinking mind takes credit for it and says, Oh, well, I came up with this (laughs) and it could be science. It could be art. um, But uh, we're going to find ourselves uh, moving in the direction of uh, uh, cultivating our creativity because our thinking mind skills are going to be second on the planet very soon. If they're not already. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, that's a kind of a good segue into another question I had about because in, uh, about creativity and, and the arts, et cetera. Uh, because you talk about in your book about how this pattern recognition and categorization that the left brain does is creating this illusory self and also therefore creating a lot of the problems we have, but that the right brain is not, is not doing that and that perhaps. Engaging in activities that stimulate the right brain. In fact, I think you uh, a quote from your book is engaging in right brain activities like art, music, poetry, humor, sarcasm, compassion, gratitude, and metaphor might be good antidotes to this. And just before you answer this, just one little quote. I know you play guitar. I play ukulele. And there's this old, you can go on eBay and find this antique ukulele. Uh, there's several of them made and, uh, and there's some cartoons on it. And then it's written on it. Music self-played is happiness self-made. Hmm. And, and, right. and, and, and because it seems like that is a right brain thing. And so, so, so could you talk a little bit about how we can, about the antidote and the, uh, to this left brain sort of conundrum we put ourselves in? So let's start with
2: music. Because, um, as I mentioned a little earlier, uh, singing is a great way to get out of your thinking mind. And you say, well, okay, well, what's, what's the neuropsych behind that? And it turns out that there's several individuals that do have a massive stroke in their left brain. And because language is controlled by the left brain, they no longer have the ability to speak. And of course, in our left brain dominant culture, this is a real problem. If I lose the ability to communicate through speech, it can be it can interfere with my life in a lot of practical ways. What they have is it's, um, I think it's called strike a chord. It started off in Australia and it was a choir that was made up completely of stroke patients, patients who had strokes in the left brain and they could no longer speak, but they could sing. And they can actually sing quite well. And they can, they have a whole choir where they all sing together. And that, and, and it, of course it helps with their therapy because they used to just try to just force it with the left brain and say, well, just keep trying to say words and articulate. And that just wasn't working. Well, these patients, when they start singing, they start to be able to communicate in ways uh, again, because the right brain seems to be specialized, I, I wouldn't say completely for music, but it has far more elements of music than the left brain does. And so I think mute. So one of the practices I do with my students is, and I just did this a couple years ago, I it was one of those just impulsive things in class. I said, let's write an essay, what music means to me. And all of a sudden, I got these incredible responses. I had one student say, if I could marry music, I would. I thought <laughs> that was <laughs> funny. But most of the responses pointed that music was so much a meaningful part of their lives that without it, life would be unbearable. And so music, we 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 don't seem to give it the credit that it deserves in the sense that it stabilizes our existence. In this reality, it counterbalances so much of our thinking. So it may sound rather cliche, but one of the best activities to counter the overthinking mind is, is music. And whether you're playing it uh, or listening to it or uh, we do drum circles uh, where, you know, you, you, if you're in the middle of a drum circle, you're just not thinking. You're in this wonderful Non-thinking state where you start communicating with others. So, you know, we start off and everyone, I don't know if you've ever done a drum circle, but everyone kind of starts off on their own. And then we just sort of connect in a way. And that's all very non, uh, non-thinking. It's, it's using another mode of our existence. And so when we talk about the right brain processing. I really think of it as another mode of existence, another, uh, it's almost like another reality that, um, is really important to us but the thinking mind has a difficult time admitting exactly how important it, it really is um so but so i think um i think music is a great place to start but of course as i said any of the meditative practices uh they all gear around i don't think you can find too many meditative practices that are involved in you know purposeful thinking they all seem to get us back into the body but just just humor humor and 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 i do think if you look over the last maybe 30 years that and again i'm just speaking kind of in western culture it just seems like we've sort of lost our sense of humor and i think it's something we kind of need to find you know and and it's a it's a Humor is an interesting thing because, again, you can't have an intellectual theory of humor. We we have psychology has almost no theory of humor because it's one of those things the thinking mind has no idea what's funny.
1: We yeah, just you know. try to explain a joke; it, it never <laughs> is funny.
2: And that, yeah, and, and no one knows what funny is. You know, it, 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 we know it when we start laughing, but there's no there's been no intellectual ability to explain what humor is. And that's because, of course, the right brain, um, of course, people who have right brain damage lose their sense of humor. They lose their ability for sarcasm. They lose their ability for metaphor. And so the more we engage in these activities, and of course, metaphor is a huge part of poetry. And, you know, when I ask the students, I say, when was the last time you read some poetry? And they'll just look at each other like, maybe never. <laughs> And so I encourage them to, you know, go on a little bit of an exploration and then, and, and try out some poetry,
1: you know. I love your approach, uh, Chris, you know, because normally for spiritual seekers, they think in terms of, you know, meditative practices, you know, they're sitting on a cushion or something like that. But what I hear you say is that really anything that is a, a, uh, activity that does not focus on the thinking mind you you mentioned poetry drumming music creativity humor i think sex would fall into that category these are all activities that we sometimes do that really aren't focused that much on this culture but they do grow that that muscle of exercising a part of your being that is beyond thinking and in that way, they could be called spiritual growth or awareness explorer, exploratory activities. And, and I think we often don't think of them that way. But now, from what you say, I can really see that, you know, I've written like 300 songs. And I'm not really good at it. Um, but I love the process because it's so beyond thinking. It's mm-hmm. a way of, of a, you know, feeling my connection to something beyond it. And, you know, if the song's good, that's great. But it's more of the process I could really just throw the song away once the creativity is done. And the same thing could be with painting or anything else that all of these activities really um, are nurturing a part of our being that, that uh, is beyond the thought.
2: And I can see the students they'll they'll get into that joy of creation and it's such a, it really is a wonderful, joyful process. And then the thinking mind will step in. And that's when you get the judgment and you'll say, you know, oh, this poem isn't very good. And, and so I'm like, okay, look, you know, that's its job. That's what that's, it, it's, it's just, it's not evil. It's not, you know, it's it's not, it's, that's just what it does. It's here to judge and it's here to be critical. And that, and, you know, the more you observe the thinking mind, the more you recognize that that's just, it's just doing its job. And so when you do this wonderful, like art and, and songs and and, and writing of music and, um, and 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 you get a little. You can get better at this, and so the judgmental part comes in, and 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 then you know you're just like, hey, I'm getting back to my music, and so I, I've because uh, I have played guitar for, for most of my life, and I just don't have any actual talent. I'm not a naturally talented musician, and that's that's the thinking mind coming along. That's the thinking mind saying, well, you're you're you know it's creating this judgment and comparing me to other musicians. But when I'm actually playing, none of that matters. None of, it, it's, it's completely irrelevant.
1: Yeah, the measure should be how much you enjoy it, how much joy it brings you, you know, and, and maybe others as well, rather than, you know, does it sell on Spotify?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also maybe there's a way of focusing on the part of you that is not judgmental, that's totally okay. As a matter of fact, I think in your book you say, um. So while several explorations have been offered in this book to help you get out of your left brain, perhaps the real you already is, and it's not worried one bit. That was actually one of my favorite quotes. There's something that's not the analytical mind that that's actually okay. And it's okay even when the analytical mind is going off and doing its thing. It says, okay, there it goes again, doing it, but I'm just... Basking in my total okayness with everything that happens, yeah, but that's the, already there,
2: yeah, it, it, and that that's a great uh, way to put it, because when you have the experience and start observing your thoughts and and really identifying the processes of the thinking mind, that's why cognitive science is such a wonderful discipline, psychology and they all point to the processes of the thinking mind, so they're all giving it this all so many wonderful pointers that we can become more and more observant to the processes of the thinking mind. And then simply follow that up with, well, that's not who I am. That's not me. And the more you do that, the more you start to connect with this already, uh, peaceful, already at peace, already where it's supposed to be at, whether it's maybe it's going nowhere and it's not doing anything. And it's completely okay with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that left brain is part of that evolutionary program that says it's never okay. And. It, it, it always wants something better. And it's the a- essence of desire. And that helped us a 100,000 years ago. It helped us when we lived in an environment that was continuously challenging. But we don't live in that world anymore. Um, You know, many of us live in a world that we, there's not a single thing we deal with that our ancestors dealt with. But that program's still running. It's still telling us, you need to get out and you need to do more. But we have that right brain that's absolutely okay, and and it's in the moment, and and it's always in the moment, and, and it, all we need to do is to, like, it's there, and you just
0: need to connect with it, mm-hmm. Brian. And it's really about, um, it's really about not identifying with form, but identifying with formlessness, isn't it? Because I had a question, like, if the self is an illusion. Who is being illused? But then I realized it's kind of like it's, it's actually form is saying this is identity, but formlessness is the true identity. I don't think I'm putting this very well, but I bet you, you could do better. No,
2: it's, it's, I mean, the, so when we talk about the right brain back in the eighties and nineties, the, clear evidence was that the right brain is our spatial processor it navigates us through space so if you do something like you know i reach out and grab a cup or something that's all right brain and so people who have right brain damage they have troubles navigating space well that's an interesting thing because space has no form to it you know space is very difficult to conceptualize if you are remember when you were a kid and you thought how can there be an end like to space like sp- like the The universe can't end because, you know, what would be beyond? So space would go, but then what's beyond that space? So the thinking mind struggles with space. It cannot get space, but you can. And when you start becoming conscious of the space around you, that's another really wonderful shift that can happen. So I was having a tough time um, years ago. I was buying a car and everything started getting stressful. And so I started focusing on the space around me. I started noticing that there was space between me and the person. And then all of a sudden uh, there's space every, like I started becoming very conscious of the space around me, the emptiness. Mm. And I couldn't think about, you can't think about the space around you. There's nothing to think about, but you can become aware of it. And when you become aware of it, 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 it almost immediately unplugs the thinking mind and it unplugs the seriousness. You know, I think there's something about space that is, uh, closer to who we are the emptiness and it's the emptiness that gives rise to form and all the things that we think are in the world and um yeah
1: you know we interviewed uh, author fred davis uh, a while back and he said something as a technique that i thought was really interesting he said imagine space as the glue that connects all the objects in your room so rather than seeing it as like empty, I saw it as the, you know, uh, in a different way and made a different relationship with that space and helped me to see the unity of things. Yeah. Uh, so I think you're right that, that, and, you know, people often describe awareness as spacious. And when we are aware of the space around us, it helps us to let go of the constriction of our imagined identity. Mm.
2: Well, what happened at the Big Bang? I mean, the whole universe, all matter, was crammed into one infinitesimally small point. The explosion was the explosion of space. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so uh, in, the, in the book, actually, I have a simple exercise about what, what's the difference between one and two? Space.
3: <laughs> you, know, well,
2: you take one and you create a space between it, and then suddenly it's two. What's the difference between two and three? More space. Mm-hmm. And so you start seeing space as the thing that's creating It's actually creating the things. It's kind of like the Gestalt figure ground. And, you know, the thinking mind just immediately picks the figure and says, well, the figure is the thing. But you can actually start focusing on the background and you can start realizing, no, it's the background creating the thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And And so space is this ultimate background that's creating all the things. And, of course, these wonderful experiences people have when they go into outer space, very transformative, conscious experiences, and i think that has to do with you know this um you get into a certain vastness of space and and it becomes a little bit more obvious and the thinking mind can't conceptualize it and so you shift over to that kind of awareness of how the emptiness is really it
1: the <laughs> it's, it's it's more it than the things the emptiness is not empty it's the thing that everything comes from yeah it's the, it gives birth to, it gives birth to all things,
2: and that's um, that's a, it's a it's a great experience when you get that to happen. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I want to make sure you, we have time for a guide meditation. I know in your book you have love explorations, which are ways that people can get glimpses of this. And we've really talked about a lot of them. Some of them from you know drumming and poetry, creativity, things like that. But you also have uh, more meditative things. But before we do that, any last words on things that we may have missed
2: no i you know the the feel of this work to me is 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 that kind of adventure you know it, 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 so non duality is becoming more popular now,
3: mm-hmm. and you
2: can see a lot of non i mean non duality 20 years ago. You, there are very very few people talking about it at least particularly in academic circles and now this idea of non-duality is becoming far more popular and that's that's kind of interesting to me because one of the questions i always i have a series of questions for like uh, non-duality but i think the first one's the most important so if reality is non-dualistic if we are if we're all interconnected and we're all one on some level, why duality? Mm-hmm. you know why play the game and I think you'll one of the things at least I've discovered, and this is one of the things I kind of create as a feeling in the work, and it's really was the last chapter of the book is we're we're playing the game because it it actually is. It's an adventure and it's and it's entertaining and it's humorous in ways that the thinking mind simply can't understand. So the game of duality is itself a, a, a huge adventure where we, we've lost ourselves, we've forgotten who we are, and now we are turning around, finding our way home. Mm-hmm. And so, so non-duality is becoming more popular and, and people are having these experiences. And um, how do we get there? You know, can we get there from, can we get to a state of non-duality from duality? And I think we can by pointing out who we are not. And the last question I have with non-duality is, are we ready for it? And I think all, there's so many interesting hints that we may not be ready yet. You know, we're not quite there, but there's so many wonderful hints that, you know, we're we're flirting. With non-duality. It's a flirtation, you know, I mean, which I think is the best way to approach it. You can't just sit there and, you know, go into it very seriously and say, look, we're all interconnected and, and you, and you really have to experience this or, or it's just, it's it so confusing. You're like, well, what if I don't feel it? And I feel like a separate self. Um, so my approach is more of like, you flirt with it. You, 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 you play with it. You, you go back to, you know, we, our thinking minds only came online when we were two. Mm-hmm. When we were kid- when we were infant. We, you know, we came into this world. We came out of this world, uh, not thinking. We were not thinking. We we were experiential beings that adopted a thinking mind and then bought into it. But I think a lot. I think we're 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 we're, we're kind of coming
1: home. We're 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 working on it. And yeah, we've taken polarization and duality about as far as it can go. And uh, we're always wanting something new. So that's the only thing we haven't tried.
0: Yeah. <laughs> wow, we better yeah. try something else. Yeah. But also the way you described it as a kind of a playfulness um, res- really uh-huh. resonates with me. Because, like, I never thought that you actually had to believe any non-dual philosophy. Because that's engaging the part of the mind that's not going to get it. But yeah. you can play with it. What if? What if... There was only one thing going on. What if everything was completely interconnected like waves in the ocean? If that was true, who would you be?
2: Yeah. Exactly.
0: Play with it and see. It doesn't
2: have to be there's there's no there's no real research on this. It's speculation, but after so many years of studying the way the left brain processes information, so I get asked all the time, what's the real difference between the left and right brain? And again, I could get into all kinds of research and stuff, but recently my definition of the difference, the main difference between the left and right brain is the left brain is terribly serious and the right brain has a sense of humor.
3: Hmm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so if you go into something terribly serious, it's probably not going to work. Or actually maybe it will. It'll work in the sense that it won't work and then you'll get even more from And maybe that was the intent, you know, um, it it's interesting cuz if we're playing a game of being what we're not then some of us who are terribly serious and and anxious i mean we're we're playing a really interesting version of the game you know <laughs> but then the right brain sees that and it starts laughing you know i think it's really close to that experience i have had this experience this recently and i just want to mention it cuz it's so it's the feel of the book and i don't know if you've ever um so like we've become you know beings with basically attached cell phones, uh, not surgically, not yet, but it's very close. And so we carry our cell phones everywhere and I do too. And, uh, but I've had an experience recently where I thought I lost my cell phone and I w- it was in my hand. Which is funny, but, (laughs) and I'm sitting there and I started having these thoughts about, okay, what am I going to do? And do I have to buy enough? What was there anything important? So it starts going through this list of, you know, how to get out of this problem. And then I looked at it and I just started laughing, you know, and I think that's a good metaphor for the nature of our existence. You know, we think we're lost. We think it's all serious. We think it's all, you know, real. And it gets us into a particularly serious state of, and then we, we we get a glimpse into the real nature of reality, and you just can't help but to kind of laugh about it. And you're like, oh, that's reality.
0: I I, I was I was lost, yeah. you know. Well, it's yeah. like a cosmic game of hide and seek. That's I, that's I, you know one of the very few people who talked
2: about that was Alan Watts, and. um at least in the West. And, and and I think that captures it really nicely. And I say, like in the book, I I give the, another metaphor of a casino. And so if you owned a casino, think about how boring it would be to play in the casino that would you own. You, you know, if you won, you lost, if you lost, there's no way to really win. But if you, if you could forget that you're the casino owner, just forget, you know, and then walk in thinking that you're disconnected and you're just, you know, a person playing this game and then you could win and it would be exciting.
0: Oh and, my gosh. So <laughs> the purpose of the universe is for fun. What a concept. <laughs> I, I think that's it though. I think yeah. the
2: universe has, I think the universe has a real, it's, it's ultimately humor. It's ultimately all in good fun. And even the things that we find are uh, in the surface of it, the, the genuine suffering, I think. And cause that's how I'm here. How did I discover that the nature of the universe is humor? Through intense suffering and taking it all super seriously. That's how I discovered it.
1: Yeah, most of the uh, spiritual teachers I've met have a great sense of humor. And I think it really comes with uh, seeing through the veils. Mm -hmm. And speaking of which, um, I hear you have some explorations or approaches to help us see through the veils. And uh, now might be a good time to... Sure,
2: sure. So this is at the end of the book. And it's just a version of it. And I do this in my classes and I, I even do it most mornings. It's just a nice meditation. And we even kind of hinted upon it earlier. And it's based on the idea of recognizing who you're not. And so I'm just going to go through a long list and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm going to be more playful with it. So instead of, again, insisting something, I'm going to say, well, let's just imagine. Now, what if? That we're going to play a long game of what if and i'll say every line and then we'll pause for a little bit and you know don't think you know let the thoughts happen sure they're going to happen but connect more with the feeling like is this possible so we'll start off what if you're not the name that you were given at birth
3: What if you're not your gender? What if you're not your job title? What if you're not as old as you think you are? What if you're not your education? What if you're not your memories? What if you are not your thoughts? What if you are not your emotions? What if you are not your desires? What if you are not your body? What if you are not your anxiety? What if you are not your depression? What if you are not who you think you are? What if you are a mystery?
2: that last one is a nice one to come back to and you can kind of take that with you throughout the rest of the day. And, and I, and that's my favorite part of the, the, the meditation is to come back to the last one and have a certain experience about what if you
3: are a mystery?
2: So that's uh kind of a simple practice, but I think it's a, uh, it's one that, that's worked for me and it works for my students and it's worked for, um, it's an old practice that comes up in a lot of different spiritual traditions, but um, it's one that I've relied on quite often to get out of my mind, lose my mind for a little bit and uh,
0: wake up to my senses. Well, it works for me or whoever it is that's uh, moving his mouth and saying stuff right now.
1: <laughs> I like how you can really take any, any one of those questions. Like, uh, I noticed when you say, what if you're not your thoughts, that was a definite jolt. It, it,
0: it made me change
1: paradigms.
0: Right. And Mine was, uh, what if you're not your body? <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, definitely felt that. And then, and then, of course, I love the ending with the mystery. Uh, I really love that. The universe loves a mystery.
1: (laughs) 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 Well, thank you so much, Chris. Uh, It's been a real pleasure and learned some great stuff. Uh, What do you want to say,
0: Brian? Well, I'm very thrilled and I can't wait for our listeners to hear this conversation. So I'm really grateful. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Oh, thanks for having me. And
1: let our listeners know that they can support us on patreon if they want at patreon.com forward slash awareness explorers where they get all kinds of free stuff if they uh, support us for as little as a dollar a month and people can find out about you chris by doing what
2: i have a youtube channel so this chris Niebuhr, phd and i have a, i kind of just have my most fun on my YouTube channel. I go off on wild adventures and, um, (laughs) you know, some of it's, a lot of it's not very serious. Um, And I think sometimes people think I'm a philosopher and I'm talking about reality. And really what I'm getting at is creating these experiences. That's really what I'm doing. It's far more than, you know,
0: speculating about the ultimate nature of reality. And one of the great things about that YouTube channel is that it's filled with a lot of really short little ones that you can just watch a whole bunch of, and ins- watch as many as you want for as long as you want. And they each have this really well-themed nugget. And I don't know, I have no clue where they come from. When I do my
2: morning jog, uh, it just something comes, and that's what I do my video on that morning. So <laughs> there's no consistency. Uh There's no real coherent. I'm not trying to create a theme-based um plan. It's really just, um, you know, whatever... It's it's the spontaneity of whatever happens at that that particular time. And so some people might really enjoy that. And some people, you know, maybe they're looking for a little bit more coherency. And that's where the book comes in. And so uh the YouTube channel is a good place. I have a Facebook, uh catching up with the Buddha, which I do little posts and I have a web page, just like Chris New York, PhD, I think. But um, but I have another book coming out in February. And, uh, or maybe January, but sometime early next year. And it's nothing, but actually it's almost entirely exercises. And it's kind of a companion workbook to No Self, No Problem, because so many people thought the exercises were helpful that we said, well, let's just put it, put all of like a buffet. You know, here's a hundred exercises and you can pick which ones work for you. Because I think different exercises work for, you know, in different ways for different people. So you you
1: really want to give
2: a huge collection.
1: I look forward to that. In fact, that's how the podcast starts. I read Ryan's book, Awareness Games, and it was nothing but exercise. And I thought, this is the greatest book ever, and, yeah. and called them up, and, and we started our discussions that way. So I look forward to having that come out, and uh, it's been a great pleasure, and I know our listeners got a lot of value. So uh, thanks for joining us on Awareness Explorers. We'll see you the next episode. And of course, as always, remember to keep exploring. Keep exploring.
0: Thank you for listening to Awareness Explorers. To learn more, you can check out our website at awarenessexplorers.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you would post a review. And please share our link on Facebook and with family and friends, because knowing yourself as awareness is the greatest gift you can give yourself or someone you love.